Hello, and thanks for tuning in. This is Heartstock Radio. I'm your host, Carol Murphy, and Daniel Hogan is in the studio. Our guest today is Cheryl Ann Karsgadden of Sundance Source. In just a moment, she's going to be with us and tell us all about what she is up to there. Remember that you can email us at heartstockradio at gmail.com and you can find us on social media where we share events of our upcoming programs and guests. Yeah, thanks for listening. I hope you're having a beautiful evening. This is Heartstock. As I went walking that ribbon of highway, I saw This is Heartstock Radio. I'm your host, Carol Murphy. I hope it's as beautiful in your neck of the woods as it is here in Montana. Having a beautiful fall, the air is cleared up, the foliage is turning. Just love this time of year. Today, we have Cheryl Ann Karsgaden. Hi, Cheryl Ann. Hello. Good morning. Good evening. Yes. It's morning for us as we record this in um, our little home office studio here. Cheryl Ann, where are you located? I'm located in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Oh, is it as beautiful there? Are you, are you having some nice fall weather? We are. We're having beautiful fall weather. And the smoke has cleared from our areas from the fires. Yeah, it's been a rough summer. Can you please tell our listeners what is Sundance Source and what you do there? Sure. I'm a consultant and it's an organization that I run myself. And what I mostly do in my work life is advise organizations, leaders and people on business excellence. Well, I'm sure we're going to hear more about that. You know, um, business excellence can be defined so many different ways. Have you always lived there in um, Alberta? Is that where you're from originally? Well, I was raised as what we call an army brat. My family was in the military. And so when I'm asked where am I from, I actually moved uh, 13 or nine times in 13 years. So by the time I was in grade eight, I had lived in one place no longer than a year and a half. So moved around a lot to military bases. And then as my parents went their separate ways, moved a few more times after that. So I would say that I am a citizen of the globe. (laughs) What was your favorite place that you lived in 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 those years? Oh, well, I I have to tell you, I do love Alberta. Uh, we've got the, the benefit of the mountains and the prairies, and it's just a, a beautiful, beautiful province. Mm. So your, uh, tell us a little bit more about that. Your, was it your father who was a member of the military and what branch and um, yeah. other places maybe that you got to go that may have shaped your perspective growing up? Well, it it really did shape my perspective. My father was in the the Army, and he did work with the United Nations as well. So when I was born, he didn't see me for six months because he was over in Belgium with the United Nations. 
So moving around that many times definitely taught me a lot about adaptability, uh, resilience, but also really how to tune in and pay attention to what's going on around me. Because you can imagine being introduced as, as the new girl that many times in that short of a span in order to find my place in my new home, I really have to be, um, I guess, emotionally attuned to what was happening around me to be able to find friends and to find activities that I could be a part of. So it really taught me to pay attention and to assess what was going on around me. And where else did you go and um, get to see? Well, I traveled a lot more outside of the military life. It was more my father who traveled. So we were on Air Force bases and Army bases um, around Canada. I lived in Vancouver, British Columbia with my mother after my parents had separated. But traveled a lot, either volunteering or through work, through Asia, through Europe, even a little bit into China and Africa. And did you get to see and experience those cultures in those places, or were you kind of sequestered on military bases? We were sequestered on military bases, <laughs> and mostly due to safety reasons. My brother was born in Germany, so we mostly lived the military life, and a lot of my life experiences came through my work in the community or volunteering or work traveling internationally. So it's, let's talk about Sundance Source and the origins of that. What types of jobs and activities did you do before that? And how did it prepare you for kind of being your own boss? Yes, you bet. Well, I started out in the corporate world and did uh, work there for quite a long time. I worked for Xerox. I worked for TELUS, which would be akin to an AT&T, the largest telecom in Canada. I worked for IBM and I worked for Ernst & Young, you know, the big company consulting firms. I also worked for some smaller startups and smaller organizations in oil and gas, as well as consulting. And my last I guess, form of formal employment was with a company called Ethier, where we worked on business excellence and I helped them set that practice up. And that's really the origins of starting Sundance Source, working on my own or for my, my own company. And from there, I started working in business excellence. What types of jobs did you do at the other companies that you worked for that kind of led you down this path? Yeah, well, I did start learning through the organizations I worked with, training like Six Sigma, Kaizen, some of the more formal consulting and operations excellence methodologies. However, my, my jobs were mostly in sales, marketing, and then that led me into consulting through Ernst & Young with transaction advisory, so buying and selling companies, 
and then doing that in my roles in the small in the smaller companies. And what that provided me was just excellent training, excellent experience with a, a larger safety net below me working for these larger organizations. So I really learned a lot. At the same time, I was actively involved in supporting or advocating for women in the workplace and diversity and inclusivity. So two parallel paths, really, working towards a consulting organization on my own Sundance source and taking the experiences that I learned in the organizations that I was with, at the same time volunteering in the community with organizations like United Way and the YMCA, uh, the YWCA, and really helping to advocate support for good, strong leadership and advocating for social justice issues. And I guess somewhere along the line, I decided to take a year off and go back to school in my late 40s. And I took a year off and took Indigenous leadership strategy and management. And this really helped to cover the spectrum of what the challenges are that we're facing right now with reconciliation in our Indigenous communities. And I myself am Métis. Uh, so I, I really wanted to be able to help you know, bridge those gaps. So I'm a little bit curious also, you know, what was your educational background before you did the focus on Indigenous issues? My, my educational background was high school. Then I went in and took a year at university for speech therapy. At the same time, that was when I got the travel bug and like many people, threw on a backpack and spent a year traveling through Hawaii, Fiji, Cook Islands, New Zealand, Australia, learning more adaptability by traveling around and ended up doing nothing with speech therapy, <laughs> ended up working with working at Xerox and starting at the warehouse where I got my big promotion to the mailroom. And at the, that point in time, my third promotion was to the message center where I took down every single message for every sales professional in the organization and put it in a little pink slip in a, in a, in a circle. And uh, that was before voicemail. So now I'm sounding like I'm a hundred. I ended up staying with Xerox and working my way up into very senior roles. And so I did not get my university degree. But through the organizations I worked with and through my volunteer work, I had the opportunity to go to six different universities for executive programs. And in Canada, there was four universities, but two of my leadership programs were at Harvard. So very fortunate to be able to get the formal training, but also to be surrounded by folks internationally. I know at Harvard, the programs that I was in for leadership accepted 25% from North America and 75% were international. 
So I really got much more of a global perspective on business issues going through those programs. Mm. So with this global perspective and your Indigenous inspiration and background, it just seems like there had to be some sort of passion brewing there with all of your experiences. What happened that made you think and see that we needed this Indigenous perspective? Well, I, I know in, in Canada, and I'm, I, I feel that this is being experienced across North America, we have quite a divide and a fractured society when it comes to looking at honoring the Indigenous practices and the land rights and access through the lands. Also in Canada, our largest source and contribution to our GDP is our commodities. So when you look at things like oil and gas and access to pipelines, we ended up really butting heads back and forth around what the right things to do were and a really divided, fractured approach between the rightful landowners in the Indigenous communities and the residential schools where Indigenous students were taken from their homes and and forced to go to what we would call the white man's school. So it became very fractured. And because I was working in oil and gas, but Indigenous by background, I could really see both sides and wanted to become more of a bridge builder. And that really hit my passion around the triple bottom line. And that really fueled my desire and my passion to try to bring people together to look at the bigger picture. Mm. Yes, it's all coming together now. I can see. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> this, is, this is beautiful. This is wonderful. Okay, so we have so much more to talk about, and we're at that midway point break. So we shall be right back with Cheryl Ann and talk a little bit more about the triple bottom line. This is Art Stock. Welcome, everyone. This is Heartstock Radio. Today, we're talking about the Triple Bottom Line with Cheryl and Garskadden. She's the leader at Sundance Source. Hi again, Cheryl Ann. Hello. So, what was your aha moment? At what point did you realize that you had this unique perspective of the Triple Bottom Line uh, with this, with your Indigenous? background and orientation, was there an aha moment? Well, I would say it was of moments. And for our listeners that may not know what the triple bottom line is, it's a term coined by John Elkington in 1994. It really talks about a sustainability framework that measures success on three key areas. And it's very simple, on people, the planet, and profit. And through one of the volunteer roles that I had, I had an opportunity to travel to Africa and saw some people that had very little 
that were very, very happy. (laughs) And I came back and was curious about how unhappy some of my colleagues and friends seemed. And also there was a lot of disarray and chaos going on in my communities around the Indigenous communities. And so when I learned about the triple bottom line, I understood that it was a framework to help organizations flourish. But my personal experiences, my training, the good, the bad, and the ugly that I had gone through gave me a perspective on this. So it really is no scientific algorithm, but 30 years of paying attention combined with life experience and some situational awareness. So I started to think, well, what if, you know, what if our actions, our attitudes, and our ethos began to shift from black and white, you're on one side or your other, to a full spectrum of color? And let's start with people. Well, we have learned, and there are algorithms and math that prove that organizations that have diversity and focus on inclusivity and belonging engage with employees better. So I talk about diversity as having five different colored Smarties around a table. Inclusivity is those five different colored Smarties all have a voice. Belonging is when those five different Smarties feel like they are a part of the team. And one of the organization's largest form of lost revenue that doesn't have to cost a dime to replace is discretionary effort. People's discretionary effort. So are people engaged? Have they bought into the vision? Do they know their part in the bigger picture? And if you can think that there's probably 20% of revenue lost through people not being engaged and not putting in their discretionary effort. But even if you thought of just 10%, what an uplift that would be for a company. Mm-hmm. And then yes. I thought, well, what, what if around the planet? Again, the actions, the attitudes, and ethos. So I think we're at a point where it's irrefutable that humans' actions and attitudes and ethos impact our planet. And our planet is our greatest provider of resources. It gives us access to commodities. It's the future of animal and humankind. It's also the provider of our food, our shelter, and our basic needs. And in the indigenous communities, they think seven generations ahead. So what we do today, how will that impact seven generations from now for the collective good? And so I started to think, like, are we killing Mother Earth, our greatest provider, trying to save ourselves? And it made me think of how do we move from nice-to-haves to to must-haves? And from a business perspective, caring about the planet and caring about people gives you the social license to operate, meaning it's no longer acceptable to destroy the earth and to create an environment that destroys your people and not face consequences. So we go to the third part, and that's profit. And again, back to actions and attitudes and ethos. What if we shifted from profit 
And what most people think of automatically when they hear profit is money, cash, currency. And we shifted that profit to abundance. The definition of profit in the dictionary is financial gain. But I was asking myself, financial gain by who? Abundance is defined as relative degree of plentifulness, having an ample amount. So are we in a place really to shift from the well understood and experienced today of the extreme view that profit is king or the extreme view that profit is evil to a better intention of what is the importance of abundance of things required? And I just looked around at my friends and colleagues and where are we at with our wellness, our physical and mental wellness, our relationships, our stress levels, our time, oh my gosh, time being our most precious resource. Are we doing the things that we love? And can we create energy and can that energy go back into work? So this gift to replace this time and all of this stress People needed more money so they could pay for their coach, their therapist, take a vacation to get away from their life, run to yoga, be stressed out and be going, namaste, namaste, I must must be less stressed, I must be less stressed. And losing connection with the single biggest source of connection and being connected as humans. And, you know, the single biggest contributor to unstable mental health is isolation. Our environment became very isolated. A lot of people were like, how did I get here? I'm lonely. I'm exhausted. I'm afraid. Nobody's really immune from this slippery slope or this slow boil of finding themselves working so hard, destroying the planet, and not being connected to their fellow humans. So why does this matter? Well, for organizations, it matters because the triple bottom line lowers risks for investors. So let's look at it from a company point of view. If you look at your financial investors, customer acceptance, employee pride and engagement, focusing on people, planet, and profit, or I'd prefer to call it abundance, creates this longevity and sustainability in a company that allows them to become perhaps a global business or a local business, a company that cares, where everyone benefits because this focus on, you know, people, planet, profit goes from greed to fulfillment and a a bounty. So when I think of this, It's so doable, it's so critical, and it provides sustainable organizations that are going to be more successful with people that are more satisfied, that can focus on the things that they love to do. And I could see both sides. I could see the organization side from my training and working for companies and being responsible for the bottom line, but I could also see what was happening to our our people, to our planet. At the end of the day, the organizations were losing out. So this big gaping crevice was really what brought me to a place of wanting to bring people and ideas together. 
And I just saw that, how can I be an impact player and help create bridges between the indigenous communities and the oil and gas companies, between government and the indigenous communities, or help elevate people that aren't getting a seat at the table, whether they are of a different race, a different color, a different sexual orientation, or what I call the invisible minority, which is women, who still are paid at 70% of what men are. There's a lot of work that needs to be done, and it's not very hard. (laughs) So that's what gets me passionate. Mm -hmm. It's all doable, as you say. So we've got about three minutes left here. And any folks out there who would like to make these sorts of changes in their organization, do you have advice for for those folks? I mean, how how do you work with companies, I guess, in a nutshell? What do you tell them that they need to implement? Working with companies, normally what I would focus on from a practical level of execution because having a vision sitting on a, a shelf serves nobody. So I, I, I would challenge organizations to look at their programs and their projects and ensure that they have those wrapped in what I call operational excellence or optimizing their resources, their financial resources, their people resources, and their products but also have that wrapped in change management, meaning how do you bring people along? How do you create change if you're not where you want to be? And if you want to optimize your contributions to the planet, engage your people and make more money at the same time. Some of the methods are through having good project and program management, having good change management, and also looking at optimizing the operations with a vision to planet, people, and profit. Doing those things right will result in more abundance for everybody. Indeed. And I'm just kind of curious too, do you have like a a success story? We only have about a minute left. So I want to kind of squeeze that in and also how folks might contact you or find you. Yeah, sure. The best way to contact me would be through LinkedIn. And I'd say success stories. When I look at small companies that are scrappy and have the most engaged people, or when I see even an addict that fights their way through an addiction and gets back on their feet, or very simply put, when you have a leader at the top, that surrounds him or herself with good leaders that focus on these and puts measurements in place that it is a culture, but I call it, this is how we do things around here. (laughs) How we do things around here is we focus on these three things without putting in a whole bunch of fancy long words. This is how we do things here (laughs) and really create that culture that promotes the focus on the triple bottom line. And, you know, growth lies in the most unlikely places, in pain, in joy, success, scarcity. And it always shocks me when I see a flower growing out from two rocks. 
<laughs> like, how does that happen? And so these are all teachers to us. Every little thing along the way, whether it's in a classroom, a university, a workplace, or seeing my own children adulting, that's growth. The growth is everywhere, but you'll find what you're looking for. So looking for growth, looking for improving the triple bottom line, then you can put in the practices in behind it that support and sustain that culture. Mm, I love that. This is Heartstock. Thank you so much, Cheryl Ann. And as usual, we will be back next week. Peace. No Heartstock Radio is a production of KBMF 102.5 Butte America Radio. Hear our programs every Friday at 5 p.m. Mountain Standard Time via live stream at butteamericaradio.org. Yeah.